Our scripture this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, the entire chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Man, you may be seated. Well, around 2,000 years ago, uh, there was a very particular and peculiar uh, incident by the Sea of Gesenaret, sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias. You, you probably know it as the Sea of Galilee. As the hot Galilean sun set on the sea, a couple of fishermen went out into the night. These men were fishermen by trade and probably wanted to avoid the the scorching heat of the day. And so they go out into the darkness and they fish and they fish and they fish and they fish and they catch nothing. All night long and not one single fish. Tired, despaired, anxious, uh, they, they begin to head to shore at dawn. And as they anchor their boats on the shore and get out and start to wash the nets to prepare them for next use, they look over and they see something really strange. There's this man with a crowd gathered around him, and this, this crowd is pressing in on him. And it looks like they're, they're trying to hear him speak. And then all of a sudden, that man, the, the teacher, looks over and he sees the fishermen, and he sees the boats, and he makes his way toward them and hops on board one of the boats. He looks at the fishermen and he says, put out onto the water. 
And strangely enough, the fisherman complies. He puts out onto the water, and this man sits down, assuming the position of a teacher, and he begins to teach the people on the shore. He teaches, and he teaches, and he teaches, and the people listen intently. And when he had finished speaking, he gets up and he looks at the fisherman, and he says, put out into deeper water so that you may cast your nets for a catch. The fisherman, in almost exasperation and confusion, says, Master, we we toiled all night and took nothing. But nonetheless, the fisherman says, At your word, I will let down the nets. So the men go out, they, they gather the nets, they prepare them for the cast, they throw them out, the nets begin to sink into position, and suddenly, out of nowhere, they begin to fill with fish. So many fish, in fact, that the nets begin to break. Exasperated, they, they begin to call to their partners, Come, help us! They come and they begin to pull the fish into the boat. So many fish, in fact, that the boats began to sink. Now, if all this were not strange enough, the fisherman looks and he sees, he sees the nets breaking. He sees the multitude of fish. He sees the boats sinking. And he looks and he sees the teacher. And something really abnormal happens. He, he falls to his knees before the teacher. And he begins to weep. He begins to sob, tears, snot. He, he can no longer lift his head. And his words, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then the teacher looks at him with grace and compassion. Perhaps he lifts his chin and he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And then he calls him to become his follower, to become his servant, and become a fisher of men. Now, I hope what, what happened to that fisherman long ago would happen to you, would happen to us this morning. As he was made a servant of the Lord, so may we be. That like him, we would see beyond this transient reality and behold the ultimate reality. That like that fisherman, that we would receive new hearts, that we would experience profound ruin and profound grace. And like that fisherman, I, I pray that we would receive a new message a message of shocking judgment and shocking hope. Now, as many of us have already received these things, I I, I pray in some way that we'll be renewed in them. And so with that said, let let us seek the Lord in prayer. O great God of highest heaven, we come before you now and ask that you would cause your word to come alive in us. Lord, open our eyes to see your beauty. Steady our hearts, for you are on your throne. O God, as we behold your beauty, your glory, your holiness, your majesty, we pray that we would see ourselves rightly. And seeing ourselves rightly, Lord, turn our gaze to Jesus Christ. Father, by your spirit and your word, would you make our hearts to hope, trust, and love your Son, Jesus Christ. And would you stir our hearts to your bidding? It's in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as you know by now, we have begun a new secondary series called When the Invisible God Becomes Visible. And this is a series in which we are examining different theophanies throughout Scripture. A theophany simply refers to a visible manifestation of God, hence the name When the Invisible God Becomes Visible. Last time, we saw Genesis 18 as our brother so wonderfully preached. And today, we'll be looking at our second text in this series, Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I invite you to go ahead and turn there as we prepare to dive into this text. But before we jump in, 
I want to give you a little bit of context to set up where we're going. The book of Isaiah is a, a book what we consider to be a major prophet within the Old Testament. It was written around 739 to 642 B.C. Isaiah is obviously the author. He was the son of Amoz, and he ministered to Jerusalem and the southern kingdom during the time in which the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were divided. He prophesied during the reign of four different kings. He condemned idolatry and warned of the coming Babylonian exile. He was a, pro, a contemporary of the prophet Hosea, and he had two sons with really great names. The first was Shear Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. And the second one I recommend for the next Vine Street baby boy is Maher Shalal Hasbaz, which means hastening to the spoil, hurrying to the prey. Isaiah's literary excellence is unmatched, which we will get a glimpse of today. And before chapter 6, he opens the book enumerating two things, the, the present and the future of God's people. And he, and he does three things here. First, he gives a denunciation, appeal, and a promise. He denounces the rebellious state that the people are in. He appeals to justice and invites his children to reason with him and be obedient. And he promises judgment for the disobedient and the wicked. That's the first thing. The second thing is this problem is revealed. Okay, And this, this problem is very important. And it is what Israel is now versus what they should be, what they will be. That is to say, Israel is not what they are called to be. That's the problem. And then third, Isaiah busts out the instruments and he sings a song. He sings a song, and this song is telling of a vineyard, which is Israel, God's vineyard. God goes into the vineyard in which he labored greatly, and he sought justice, but he found bloodshed. He sought righteousness, but he found an outcry. And consequently, woes are pronounced on God's vineyard, Israel, and its wild and sour grapes. This is summed up in chapter 5 of Isaiah, verse 20, where it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. On account of this, God announces the coming destruction and judgment on the stiff-necked people. And so we come to Isaiah 6, and what is most important, like I just said, for you to know is this problem that has been set up in the first five chapters. That is, what Israel is versus what Israel is to be. And the question is, how are they going to become what they need to be? And Isaiah provides the answer in chapter 6, and it's an anecdotal answer with his vision. That is, what happens to Isaiah in his vision needs to happen to Israel in order for them to become what they need to be. As such, what we are going to see in Isaiah 6 is the making of a servant of the Lord. The making of a servant of the Lord. And we're going to see this in three different sections. Three sections, each consisting with a, uh, an important contrast. First, we will see the servant's new sight, his new sight in verses 1 to 4. And the contrast here is between transient reality and ultimate reality. Second, we will see the servant's new heart in verses 5 to 7, his new heart. And the contrast is between profound ruin and profound grace. And third and lastly, we will see the servant's new message in verses 8 to 13, and the contrast here is between shocking judgment and shocking hope. So first, let's consider the servant's new sight and the contrast between transient reality and ultimate reality. Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, now let's just stop here for a moment. It's very interesting that Isaiah marks his vision with this explicit time reference. Who is King Uzziah? 
Who cares about King Uzziah and his death? Well, I'm very glad that you asked. King Uzziah was a king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was made king at the age of 16, and uh, that was when his father was put to death. He would continue to reign for 52 years, 52 years as the 10th king of Judah. And most importantly, he was a good king. He was a good king. That is, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. King Uzziah sought God, and he was instructed by Zechariah. His reign was one of the most prosperous and successful reigns in the kingdom of Judah. The Lord helped him to have conquests. He defeated the Philistines, the Arabians, the Mennonites. He committed himself to developing his kingdom. He built towers, cities, and ports, and strong defenses in Jerusalem. He engaged in business. He, he reared animals and farmed. And because he feared the Lord, God made him prosper in all that he did. His prosperity, his, his power, and his conquest, Scripture tells us, made his fame go as far as Egypt. Yet despite the goodness and prosperity of Uzziah's reign, by God's grace, Uzziah becomes proud unto destruction. 2 Chronicles 26, 16-21 tells us this. It says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But when Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong. It will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and the priest looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. So we have this good king, this king who reigns for 52 years, is suddenly dead. Can, can, can you imagine what that would be like? It's, it's hard for us Americans to picture it because we don't have a king. But imagine the stability, the confidence, and the trust that it produced within the nation. Maybe the closest thing that we can picture to imagine this is Queen Elizabeth II, who just entered her 70th year on the throne. And though she's not necessarily an absolute monarch like Uzziah was, can you imagine how people are going to feel when she dies? It'll be terrible. It'll be a tragic loss. Similarly, imagine the hopelessness of the people upon Uzziah's death, especially in light of the coming Assyrians and the nation turmoil. Imagine having a good leader all your life, someone to point to as evidence of the grace of God on the nation, and suddenly it's gone. It's gone. It is in this situation that Isaiah receives the vision. It was in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The king of Judah has died, but the Lord lives. In light of this unparalleled death, Isaiah sees unparalleled life. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah looks and sees the Lord, the sovereign, and this sovereign one is on a throne. Though earthly kings rise and fall, though nations come and go, though powers that sell and cease, God remains. He's the I am. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's not moved. He's not changed. He's not phased. God is sovereign. He is Lord of all. His throne and his reign are the most assured thing of all. Indeed, is what is ultimate. Where was God when Rome conquered the world? He was on his throne. 
Where was God during World War II and the Holocaust? He was on his throne. Where is God even now as Russia invades Ukraine, as there are terrible shootings within our country, as close family and friends die? He's on his throne. He's on his throne. And that that is not a bad thing. It's the greatest of all things. It does not make God the conspirer of evil. It uh, It gives us hope that justice and goodness will prevail. Isaiah sees God on his throne high and lifted up. High and lifted up. This phrase is very important in Isaiah as it refers to God himself. It is God that is high and lifted up, not primarily his throne. And so it's very curious later in the book when Isaiah mentions this mysterious servant who is exalted and high and lifted up in chapters 52 and 53. This servant who bears the iniquities and transgressions of the people. Nonetheless, I hope you're getting a picture of what Isaiah is seeing here. He adds one more thing to the description. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now the word train basically means hem, like the, the hem of a robe. The bottom part where all the stitching and, and it comes together and it's held together. It, it, it's, it's, it's that what is what Uzziah, I'm sorry, Isaiah sees. Uh, the part of the robe where the robe stops. And this hem of God's robe fills the temple. Do you get that? It's, it's just the bottom of his robe. It's just the bottom that Isaiah sees. One commentator asks, rightly, how big is God? How big is God? He's the biggest of all. He's the greatest of all. It's just the hem of his robe that fills the temple. And we we can't get too caught up on the physical dimensions because that's not what is most important. What is perhaps more relevant is that Isaiah describes the scene, the throne room of God. He cannot get past the hem of God's robe. He cannot go further The reality is so majestic, it's so beautiful, it's so glorious that he does not have the words to describe what he is seeing, anything past the hem of God's robe. Indeed, there are not even adequate words to fully describe this theophany. How how amazing is that? Isaiah goes on, he says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So here, here in the throne room of God are these mysterious creatures called seraphim. Now this is the only time in the Bible that the word seraphim is used. In Revelation chapter 4, there are similar creatures in God's throne that are described, and the only difference is that they have eyes all over. Uh, the, the word seraphim is a little debated. Some people think that, that it comes from the Hebrew word, which means serpent. And so they see the seraphim as these like serpent, dragon-like, if you will, creatures in the throne room of God. Others see the the word seraphim in reference to the Hebrew word for burning or fiery ones. Most people will point out that the the word seraphim probably comes from the burning or fiery ones. And serpents are actually called serpents because of the sensation that you get when you're bit, as it burns. And so it's best to see these as the burning ones, the the fiery ones. The seraphim are the fiery ones in the throne room of God. And so each of them has six wings, which is very peculiar. With two they cover their face, because they cannot look directly at the glory and majesty of God. With two they cover their feet, showing modesty and distinguishing the fact that they are creatures and not the Creator. In the same way that they hide their face from the, the glory of God, they hide their feet from God's sight in some sense. And with two wings, these creatures flew. But it's not their anatomy or even their presence that is the focus of what's going on. It's, it's their song. Their anatomy itself points to something greater, and that is what their song describes. He says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of his glory. When you think of God, 
Does a shiver run down your spine? It should. It should. This, this vision of God is utterly terrifying. This, this glimpse of his transcendent nature. The seraphim call to another, that is, they, they sing, Holy, holy, holy is who? The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies. And the seraphim song is really important because it's providing Isaiah with an interpretation of what he is seeing. Now, just as a side note, all of what I'm about to say is coming from the help of, of Mike and, and commentaries and different study, so it's not unique to me. Um, but back to the point. So he says, holy, 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 the trishagion, as many call it, is, is very important. God is holy, but he isn't just holy. He is holy, holy. God is holy, holy, but he isn't just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. This, is the, this repetition is the strongest superlative possible in the Hebrew. A word is only repeated like this if it is absolutely superlative. That means nothing greater. He's, he's the holiest of all. And have you ever noticed that there's nothing else in Scripture that's attributed to God like in this superlative construction? God has never said to be love, love, love. Or just, just, just. Or merciful, merciful, merciful. Only holy, holy, holy. And now that's not to say that God is more holy than he is loving. Now, this does not put the different attributes of God against one another. If we have the tendency to think that, it's perhaps because we don't understand what holy means and we don't understand the one simple nature of God. Now, this is important. At its heart, holy means distinct or other. It does not immediately connote or necessitate this idea of purity. In fact, in Scripture, there are these prostitutes of Baal and Asherah that are called holy in Hosea chapter 4 and Genesis 38. Nonetheless, throughout Scripture, holiness does begin to take on this this element of purity um, and this ethical notion. We see that in Leviticus 19. Israel was called to be holy as God is holy. And Israel's holiness was not predominantly in terms of their cultic or ceremonial purity. It was in terms of their their, uh, ethical purity, their, their character. As such, when the seraphim call together, holy, 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 Isaiah knows that he stands before the one who is completely other, distinct, and transcendent. Yet this terrifying otherness was not just in essence only, it was in character. It's in God's character. So together, the the word holy seems to be a sort of summation word. It's an adjective capturing what God is and all that he is. What God is and all that he is. That's to say that, that God is other, He's distinct. He's, he's holy in all that he is. His love is other. Why? Because he is love. His good is other. It's holy. Why? Because he is goodness itself. In different words, he is other, he is holy, and that he is God. Are you tracking with that? That is to say, God is other or holy in all that he is, and he is other or holy primarily, intrinsically, in that he is God. That's why D.A. Carson points out, if the word holy was to ever be substituted, it would have to be a direct adjective of God, like the word godly. Though it's funny to say, God is godly, godly, godly. But that's, that's what is being said here. God is the, the godliest of all. There is no one more godly than God. He is completely other, completely distinct. <clears throat> There's no one higher. There's no one greater. There's no one like him. His, his nature is supreme. His character is supreme. It's what is ultimate. It's what is ultimate. The, his character and his nature are ultimate reality. The fact that, that God is, is what is ultimate. And this is exactly what's conveyed by God's name revealed in Exodus 3, where he says, I am who I am. 
And it's because that God is God that he sits on his throne high and lifted up. And now have you, I hope you saw that this reality is so ultimate that the whole earth is full of his glory. God's nature is so supreme, so ultimate, that it fills all of creation. It fills all of creation. And his glory is the magnification of all of his perfect attributes or his one nature. In some sense, this shows that what is being portrayed by the word holy is indicative of, of God's nature, his, his, his character itself. And this declaration, the seraphim song, is so powerful that it causes inanimate objects to tremble. Did you see that? Isaiah says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This verbal proclamation of God's holiness causes inanimate things to tremble. I wonder, does it cause you to tremble? I hope you're getting a sense of the sheer awesomeness of what is happening here in this vision. I hope you're getting a a glimpse of the ultimate that is God himself. That being said, there are two things from this section that I want you to take, two areas of application which are necessary for servants of the Lord. First, do not live as though the transient is ultimate. Do not live as though the transient is ultimate. What do I mean by transient? I simply mean that all, all that reality, which is not God himself, the things that will pass away, the things like creation, this life, your job, your family, other relationships, yourself. Do not place these things. Do not place your hope in these things. Do not orient your life around these things. Do not make them ultimate because they are transient. They will fail you. If an Israelite places hope and trust in Uzziah alone, he was surely and completely devastated at his death. See, we have this tendency as human beings to not look past ourselves, to not look past the things that we see, the things that are secondary. And when we do that, we will never have hope. Essentially, that's what idolatry is, isn't it? Taking these derivative, transient, and secondary things and pretending that they are ultimate. Pretending they are what only God is. Don't don't do that. We must not do that. It's fruitless, it's unsatisfying, and it's a sure path to devastation and hopelessness. Your job isn't ultimate. Your education isn't ultimate. Your family and other relationships are not ultimate. Whether America is run by conservatives or liberals is not ultimate. The SBC and its leaders are not ultimate. Only God is. God alone is in that position. God alone deserves to be the place where you orient your life around. And that's not to say that those other things don't matter or are important because they do and they are. It's just that they are secondary. So don't live like they're primary. Take a look at yourself and look closely. If you have oriented yourself, your life around something that is not God, it's time to change. And a telltale sign that, that there's something like this in your life, it, that you have exalted something in your life as though it were, is, is ultimate, um, is when your emotional state depends on that thing. Okay, so do your emotions rise and fall in congruent with what is going on at work? or in the country, or whatever else. And I'm not referring to like general disappointment or, or sadness or care that our country is running itself off a cliff. I'm talking about things like panic, fear, worry, anxiety, anger, and ruin in response to things like that. So that's first. Do not make the transient ultimate. Second, see, see the glory of God, savor the glory of God, and serve the glory of God. Don't walk away from this text blinded to the fact of who God is. See him. He's he's holy, holy, holy. See his transcendence, his his otherness, his beauty, his majesty, his glory. See that he is God and there is no one like him. Do you see how altogether 
lovely God is. Savor it. Cast your affections on him. He is beautiful. Every day, all day, meditate on the grandeur of our great God who sits on the throne. Go outside and look at creation and marvel at the God who made all things. Take scripture, take today's text and meditate on it. Replay it in your mind. Think about what it means for God to be holy. And then let these meditations spring up into word and proclamation. Tell people about God, who he is and what he has done. Sing to God, tell of your love for him, and strive to make your life a life that is lived for the magnification of God's nature. And for all of this, we need to understand the difference between transient reality and ultimate reality. And so we need, as servants, new sight. And we need to orient ourselves and cast ourselves upon the ultimate, which is God himself. That's the first point. And I promise, I promise that the next two points will be shorter. So second, the servant's new heart and the contrast between profound ruin and profound grace. Isaiah has seen God in his glory and splendor. Isaiah has listened to the seraphim echo, holy, holy, holy. And having seen God truly, Isaiah now sees himself truly. He writes, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah pronounces a woe on himself. Today, typically, the, the word woe refers to some sort of distress or, or, or curse. And, and commentators will point out that it's really close to the word alas. And Isaiah has already used this word multiple times back in chapter 5. But why, why does Isaiah pronounce a woe on himself? Why, why does he make this pronouncement of lowly affair? It says, for or because, I am lost. Older translations will say undone or ruined. And the idea here is of being disintegrated or dissolved. One commentator says, like a pad of butter subjected to the heat of the sun, Isaiah melts. He melts. He goes on to say that he's a man of unclean lips. There's a contrast here between the seraphim and Isaiah. If Isaiah's lips were clean, his song would be the same as the continuous song of a seraphim. But more to the point, the lips are connected to the heart. Right? We see as much when Jesus says in Matthew 12, out of the heart comes evil. Out of the heart the mouth speaks. Isaiah's lips are unclean and so is his heart. Isaiah's song is not like the seraphim song, not because of a lip problem, but because of a heart problem. And after referring to himself, Isaiah mentions that he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's not just himself, it's the nation. And we saw that in chapter 5. They call evil good and good evil. They are perverted, greedy, indulgent, and cynical. And finally, we come to the reason for Isaiah's dissolved state. is because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Upon seeing God, Isaiah sees himself. And now there are a number of aspects here. Isaiah, as a finite creature, is ruined before the infinite God. But more explicitly in the text, Isaiah, as an unclean creature, is ruined before the perfect and holy creator. Here is another hint that even in this context, the, the word holy that's, that's given to God is about his, his character. He is holy, 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 and Isaiah is not, not, not. Do, do you see Isaiah's profound ruin? He's not just like a dead man. He is a dead man. And here Isaiah stands, or, or rather falls, utterly hopeless. He does not even plead for mercy and grace. Did you see that? He is absolutely disintegrated in heart. And he's resolute with certain death because he has seen God. His sin is too great and he cannot make amends. And so he doesn't. But even though Isaiah's sin, his uncleanliness, is too much for him to bear in the presence of the holy God... 
God is greater than that uncleanliness, than that sin. And he gives profound grace. In his great mercy and grace, God does not reveal himself to Isaiah for his destruction, but for his cleansing. Isaiah writes, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So one of those creatures in the throne room of God, one of the burning ones, goes over to the altar with tongs. And he picks up this coal. And it's really interesting because that coal must be very hot for one who is on fire to pick up a coal with tongs. And then he does what with it? He, he puts it on the mouth of Isaiah, his lips, the most sensitive, one of the most sensitive parts of the body. The, the, the mouth probably sizzles, it, it burns, and the pain is probably very great. But the pain is not greater than the joy that springs up in Isaiah's heart's heart upon the proclamation of what is happening. The seraphim says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The pain that he experiences is nothing compared to this reality. Can you imagine standing before a holy God, being ruined, being disintegrated, being a dead man, and then hearing these words, these words of life? Could there be sweeter words for a sinner? God has taken his guilt away. God has atoned for his sin. And I know it's somewhat confusing as how a coal accomplishes this. And some want to talk about the purifying element of fire, and that's true. But I think more explicitly in the text, it, the coal comes from an altar. So it's the remnant of some sort of sacrifice that's applied and effective for cleansing. But the point is clear. Isaiah was a dead man, and now he's alive. Isaiah had profound ruin upon seeing God because he saw himself. But God had profound grace on Isaiah, bringing the dead man to life, giving the servant a new heart. That's beautiful. Does your heart not rejoice? Now there are two more things I want you to take from this section. Two areas of application that are necessary for servants of the Lord. First, see sin as it is, wretched and ugly. After seeing God, Isaiah saw himself and he was ruined. Have you ever seen yourself in light of the holy God? Have you ever seen yourself in light of the holy God? The truth is that our sin is wretched and ugly. It's, it's gross, it's disgusting, it's, it's perverted, it's evil. When we act in such a way that's contrary to God's nature, His order, His decree, it's, it's an abomination. Why? Why is sin so bad? Surely people won't go to hell for, for lying, right? What's the big deal? We cannot think like that. We, we, we must not think like that. Sin is serious because it is against the infinite and holy God. It is no small matter. So, so don't think lightly about sin. We must not. Don't brush it under the rug. If you look at your life and it's marked by an indifference to sin, maybe you haven't seen God clearly. If we're to grow in sanctification, we must continually behold God because it's only in light of Him that we see ourselves rightly. So behold God and see yourself. And respond rightly with a broken and contrite heart. See sin as it is, wretched and ugly. But also, second, see God as he is merciful and gracious. Yes, your sin is great, but God's grace is greater. His grace is greater, so don't wallow in your sin. You need to see your sin rightly. You need to respond appropriately. But part of that response is looking to God with open hands and receiving his lavish grace. His mercy and grace are abundant. There's a balance here, something that I think we, we all need to learn. Sin is often worse than we think, that's true. But the Christian life is not one of perpetual ruin, but of perpetual grace. When you refuse to look past your, your muck, your filthiness, you make less of the grace of God. Don't do that. Don't, don't bind the lie that you were too far gone. 
Don't buy into the lie that you need to clean yourself before you go to God. But also, don't, don't hear me telling you to presume on the grace of God. No, see your sin as it is, and see God as he is, and then turn to him with a broken and contrite heart, and open hands, and receive his lavish grace, and be changed, be cleansed, be sanctified. God's grace is sufficient for you. And we all need to hear that. God's grace is sufficient. There should be profound ruin over sin, even now. But God pours out his profound grace, and it is enough. It is enough. Servants are given new hearts, but even now, servants' hearts are being renewed. Last point, and even shorter. We see the servant's new message and the contrast between shocking judgment and shocking hope. Isaiah has been cleansed, and now he writes, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Before Isaiah receives the message, God commissions his servant for a mission. Suddenly, for the first time in the vision, God speaks. God speaks, and it's an invitation. It seems perhaps Isaiah was not ready to hear the voice of God until he had been cleansed. Or better yet, he was unable to hear the voice of God until he had been cleansed. God speaks generically. That that is, he doesn't speak directly to Isaiah. He speaks to the whole heavenly host, and he says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah, without hesitation, yells out, Here I am. Send me. This is such an extraordinary moment. One commentator notes beautifully that having believed with certainty that he was about to be crushed into non-existence by the very holiness of God and having received an unsought-for and unmerited complete cleansing, what else would he rather do than hurl himself into God's service? Those who need to be coerced are perhaps too little aware of the immensity of God's grace toward them. So unlike Adam and Eve, who, who sought to hide from the searching voice, Isaiah permitted for a moment to eavesdrop on the counsels of God cannot keep silent. He says, what I do? And such a grateful offering of oneself is always the cry of those who have received God's grace after they have given up hope of ever being acceptable to God. The the sequential relationship here of the elements ought not to be overlooked. Each element leads to the next. The the king's death prepares the way for the vision of God. The vision of God prepares the way for self-despair. Self-despair opens the door to cleansing, and cleansing makes it possible to recognize the possibility of service. And his total experience leads to an offering of oneself. Now after this, God instructs Isaiah that his mission is to preach a shocking message. He writes, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, unless they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. God gives Isaiah a hard message, and it's a message of judgment. And there's a lot that could be said here. What I want you to see is, is the despair that sin brings. Israel has disobeyed God to the point where, like we mentioned earlier, they call good evil and evil good. And this is where it comes full circle. The message is not just a hard message, but it's a hardening message. We are first given these parallel lines. It says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Both of these lines are indicative of the same shocking reality. If you hear something, you ought to understand it. If you see something, you ought to perceive it. But hearing, they don't understand, and seeing, they don't see. The people are so broken that at the proclamation of truth, their hearts are hardened. And after these parallel lines comes a chiasm. It says, make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. The message itself makes the heart of the people dull, and their ears heavy, and their eyes blind. Why? Well, if they saw with their eyes, heard with their ears, and understood with their hearts, they would turn and be healed. 
This is judgment. This is judgment. Israel has forsaken their God. They have disobeyed the covenant, and they have not trusted in him. As a result, um, the mere proclamation of the truth is hardening. And so this is a hard message, and it's a hardening message. It's a, a message of shocking despair, shocking judgment. Isaiah hears in response, and I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah's response here isn't exactly like someone say jump and someone else saying how high. He's not questioning God uh, or even reluctant to do what God is saying, but he does have a heavy heart when he receives this message. He wants to know if there's going to be mercy on Israel. Isaiah has concern for the welfare of his nation. But nonetheless, Isaiah is going to obey. He's going to do what God has called him to do for as long as God has told him to do it. And God's answer to the question isn't exactly heartwarming. God tells Isaiah to preach until there's complete destruction, until cities are a waste and people are out of the land, until it's burned to the stump. Once again, there's judgment. It's judgment. Do you see the shocking judgment? But that's not it. That's not where it ends. Uh, One commentator says God's last word, intended last word, is never judgment. No, he writes this. The holy seed is its stump. The holy seed is its stump. Out of shocking despair and judgment come shocking hope. Yes, there's going to be destruction. There is going to be judgment. But the holy seed is coming. There is hope. Later, Isaiah is going to say in chapter 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This this holy seed, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He's the one in Isaiah 52 and 53 who's called a root out of dry ground who had no former majesty. The one who's going to bear the iniquity of the people. The one who's going to be pierced for our transgressions. And 700 years later, Jesus did exactly that. He was lifted up on a cross. He was murdered by evil men. But though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. From the cross springs forth salvation. And though he died, the grave could not hold him. No, King Jesus burst forth from the grave, sealing redemption for God's people. This is the holy seed, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, the Lion of Judah, the Son of David, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, two, two things as we prepare to close. First, hear God's commission and be obedient. Hear God's commission and be obedient. Remember what was said earlier. Those who need to be coerced uh, are perhaps too little aware of the immensity of God's grace toward them. The grateful offering of oneself is always the cry of one who has received God's grace after they have given up hope of being acceptable. Have you received grace? Have you received grace? If you have, there is a mission. There is a mission. And obedience looks like saying with Isaiah, here I am, send me. Second, herald the one true gospel, no matter what comes. You must herald the one true gospel. Do not be ashamed of it and do not water it down. It's the power of salvation. Much like Isaiah's message, the gospel is a hard message, and it's a hardening message. Even so, herald it in its beauty and robustness. The gospel is effective to produce a response within someone. It doesn't return void. It's either going to be rejected or accepted. And either way, our job is to herald it. It's to spread it. But also herald it no matter what comes. Trouble is coming. Persecution is coming. 
The gospel is becoming more and more offensive to our culture. It will become harder and harder to proclaim in our society without consequence. But you must do so, no matter what. Like Isaiah preached until cities were a waste, you, we, must preach until Christ returns or until we die. Why? Because that's what servants do. Not just that, but it's, it's worth it. And not just that, Christ is worth it. So, we have seen the making of a servant of the Lord. Isaiah is showing Israel that in order to become the Israel they need to be, uh, they must receive new sight, new eyes. They, they must receive new hearts and a new message. A servant of the Lord sees beyond this transient reality and beholds ultimate reality and orients his or her life around that, which is God himself. A servant of the Lord, having seen God rightly, sees himself rightly and experiences profound ruin, but also receives profound grace from the Lord. And a servant of the Lord preaches the Lord's message, a message of shocking judgment and shocking hope. Are you a servant of the living God? Have you received new eyes, a new heart, and a new message? You're like, hold up, Blaine. I have not received a vision from God. I have not seen the throne room like Isaiah did. I have not seen the, the seraphim. And I have not heard the song, holy, holy, holy. So how in the world am I supposed to receive these things if I have not been given a vision? The answer is in the face of Christ Jesus, encountering the Lord Jesus. Do you remember the story I told you at the beginning? It's from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And it's about the making of a servant of the Lord. And it's Peter Peter, who would become the apostle Peter. And what happened when he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ? There wasn't just a miracle of fish on that day. No, there was another miracle. He received new sight. He beheld ultimate reality. But that's not it. No, what happened when he saw Jesus? He experienced profound ruin. He said, depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And what does Jesus do? He looks at him and does something that only God can do. He gives him a new heart. He pours out profound grace. He said to Peter, do not be afraid. And that's not it. What happens next? Jesus gives Peter a new message. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. And it takes a while, but Peter eventually is going to stand up before hostile people and say things like this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So look to Jesus. It's in Jesus that the invisible God becomes ultimately visible. No, you don't, you don't see him with physical sight, but see him nonetheless. He's in the pages of the Bible from cover to cover. So read it, see him, and be his servant. A servant with a new sight, a new heart, and a new message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and for your word. God, we pray that you would give us new eyes, new sight. Lord, that you would renew it within us, that we would see you that we would savor you, and that we would serve you. God, give us new hearts and and renew our hearts. Seeing you rightly, Lord, would we see ourselves and experience profound ruin over sin. And God, would you pour out your profound grace upon us. Lord, we thank you that you have given your servants a new message, a message that is of shocking judgment, but more importantly, of shocking hope. Lord, would we herald that message no matter what comes. God, help us to this end. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.